Well, we have one final sermon in Revelation before we turn back to the book of Romans. And I want to do something this morning, this is where the work comes in, that, that it will defy all of your assumptions of me as a, as a preacher, which I confess uh, are, are very justified, these assumptions. I know we normally walk through books of the Bible very slowly, and we attempt to squeeze out every last drop of truth that we can find verse by verse. And some of you like to point out this slow, like turtle-like pace. I've even heard a group that will remain unnamed, which said recently that my New Year's resolution for 2024 would be to get through nine whole verses of Romans before the end of the year or something like that. Well, buckle up this morning because we're going to preach the entire book of Revelation in one sermon. One sermon. What do you think about that? You're going to have to work. It's going to be harder for you if you don't have a hard copy Bible, but I think you can keep up on your, on your phones. And we've already worked through the book of Revelation verse by, by verse some years ago, years ago, but today we're going to do a flyover of, of the book so you can see the big picture of it. And this is in... Hopefully we'll be in preparation and help for you as we, we get into just one specific aspect of, of eschatology. And it's going to go kind of like a plane ride. So it's going to start slow as we taxi and we, we, we take off. And then uh, that's going to be the beginning of the book. And about the time you get to the throne room scene in chapter 4 and chapter 5, we're going to start picking up speed. And then chapter 6 all the way up through, uh, through chapter 19... Chapter 20 will go pretty fast, and then we'll, we'll start a descent and slow down again and focus on the, on the end of the, of the book. Um, I did this once before, but didn't get all the way through. I think we went all the way through to, uh, through to Revelation 20, which, which closes out the second section of the, of the book. But we left off the best part. We left off the ending when God will make all things new. And so I hope it's very uplifting for you. At least that's my desire uh, for, for this morning. Revelation is a fascinating book for, for anyone. Even unbelievers are interested in it. Mainly because people, people are preoccupied with, with knowing uh, things ahead of time. Sadly, when newspapers used to be the, uh, the dominant media, the, the most read section of the newspaper was the horoscope. Um, but a believer... For a believer, Revelation is far better than any fake generalities written by, written by human beings that don't really know a whole lot. I mean, it is a specific and detailed declaration of the future, which includes some ugly parts. That begins in chapter 6. But even those sections that, that, that are bitter are not bitter to us because we know the author personally and we know what awaits uh, his people to us, Revelation is a book of promises, not, not predictions. And frankly, most people who are interested in, in the future shouldn't want to know what's coming unless they're planning on repenting because it will be, it will be horrifying uh, for them. Ecclesiastes 3 reminds us there's only one who has the grip of time, and that's the Lord, and he'll bring everything in, in time to, to pass, or Isaiah reminds us this way remember this and stand firm recall it to mind you transgressors remember the former things of old for i am god and there is no other i am god there's none like me declaring the end from the beginning so here's the end he's already given us the beginning and everything in between but here's the end and my counsel shall stand i will accomplish all my purpose and revelation is part of god god's purpose the book of revelation is a primary source where God shows us what, what he will do in the future. Do you have a Bible? hope so. If so, open it to Revelation 1 and get ready as we move through this amazing book. I mean, the entire Bible reveals God's redemptive plan, but, but the book of Revelation is the final chapter. It unveils the future history of the world, the return of Christ, the setting up of his earthly intermediate kingdom, when then it ends with the eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth. But, but in reality, as we said, it's not the ending, but the beginning of what awaits every human being. And, and John pours a foundation for this book in, in what he will unfold in the first three verses that Colin read for us. It has a revealing title 
reliable transmission, and then a promised benefit. The, the title is what will be revealed in, in verse 1. How it is revealed is told to us in verse 2. And then there's a promised blessing that, of why we, we, we should study it. And from the very first verse, Revelation tells us about its contents. It's an unveiling or an apocalypse and a foretelling or, or a prophecy. And we, we saw this in the introduction, uh, to, at least to, to, I think we covered this in a, one of those four, four to seven letters. Look, look, if you would, at verse 1 of Revelation. It says, the revelation or the apocalypsis of Jesus Christ, which God gave to his bondservants, the things which must soon take place. And there's, there's the prophecy. It's revelation means, apocalypsis means to, to make things visible, things that would be unvisible or invisible, unseen, to, to be made plain. It's an unveiling or disclosure of what is unseen. It's used 18 times in the book. Revelation unveils, makes visible the unseen things that are going on to the church, what the church is engaged in and what it will be engaged in, at least up until the time it's taken out of the world. And it's so that we can see it, we can anticipate it. So it will bring us hope. And it's not an expert opinion. This is not John's expert opinion. Somebody who walked with the Lord and knew the Lord maybe better than you. This is not his opinion. This is a divine disclosure of what is taking place and what will take place. That's the prophecy part. And it's also a prophecy. Look, look if you would, at verse, verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and he who hears the words of this prophecy, prophecy and heeds the things which are written in it. So it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's an unveiling and a foretelling and a prophecy is not what, what you hear from, from, from psychics, people who claim to be able to see into the future. They often speak in riddles. That's not what God means. This is what God means. Prophecy is what must take place, what will take place, accurately declared beforehand. It's a precise foretelling of exactly what will come to pass. It's a divine look. Into the, into the future. And so when you think of Revelation, think of those two things. An unveiling, to make things clear, plain, you can see, and a foretelling of what is to come. And the bonus application is, is this is not just the future, but, but, but your future, which is why you want to you pay attention to the God who reveals. He, he knows the unseen, and, and he's given us a dependable message in this book. So we can know and prepare. And we're, we're on the plane now and, and we're just taxiing. But there is a, there's a reliable transmission. Look, if you would, at verse 2. Who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Notice how we received the book of Revelation. He tells us. We, we received it. There's a divine author. This is not John, but this is the word of God. It's a trustworthy source, though, that, that brings it to us. There's a... There's God's messenger, and this man is a tested servant. John is on the Isle of Patmos because he's a trustworthy source. God presents how we, re we get the book in this progression of, of reliability. It's from God the Father, given to Jesus Christ, reveal him. It's shown to his servants the things which must soon take place, and it's, and it's, for, it's for us. It's made known to his servant John, who was a proven, faithful witness. And there's a promised benefit for those who study it. Verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things that are written in it. Blessed is the one who reads, the one who hears, and the one who heeds. You don't just read it and hear it, but, but you actually listen to it. You submit to it. There's a promised blessing of hearing and heeding, the book of Revelation. And look at how John ends this, this opening salvo in verse, verse 3. For the time is near. I mean, he, he's saying, he's coming soon. So pay attention to what I'm about to say. And then after the intro, John begins to, to unfold the, the book. Here is the whole book of Revelation in, in, in flyover. Okay, you're looking at your little screen on the back of your, your, your seat and you know that you're going from Roanoke to Atlanta or wherever it is. Here's the entire route. There's the prologue, the introduction. There's the pre-speech, verses 1 through 8. Then there's the things that are, 
that, that starts in verse 9, which is this vision of the Son of Man, the Son of God, that, that John gets, the letters to the seven churches. That, that is what covers the things that are. So middle of chapter 1 through the end of chapter 3. Chapter 2 and 3, written to the seven letters, these individual letters to the seven churches. We covered four of those. Then it turns to the throne room scene, chapter 4 and 5. The throne room scene, John sees generally what's in the throne room. And then chapter 5, he sees the one who's sitting and what's happening in the throne room. These are the things that shall take place after. Things in the future that are, that are to come, the beginning of the future. That runs all the way through chapter 20. So after the throne room, beginning in chapter 6, all the way through chapter 20, you have Jesus who takes the deed, the, the title deed of the earth, and he begins to unfurl the scroll. He reads what's on the scroll, and it unleashes things on the earth. And that goes, goes all the way up to bringing about the second coming of the, of the Lord and his intermediate earthly kingdom. And then you get all things new, verses 21. So after the earth is done, now it's the new heavens and the new earth. All things are new. The new Jerusalem, new heaven, new earth. And then you have the after speech which is the epilogue, the invitation, the application, the so what of, of, of revelation. So the prologue is the greeting, if you will, to the seven churches. John lays the foundation in verses 1 through 3, what this is what's coming, where it came from, how it got to us. And then there is a greeting to these seven churches that are receiving the, the, the letter. Look at verse 4 of chapter 1. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and was and who is to come. I mean, the things that are. John covers the vision of the Son of Man in verses 9 through 20. These are the things that are. He sees the vision of Christ in heaven while he's on the earth. We've looked at, at, at that before as we walk through those, those, at least those four letters. If you finish the other three letters, you'll get the rest of the, of the vision and it, here's the vision in the whole, the, the summary of, of, the seven, of the seven churches. John identifies the sender of the letter, the receiver of the seven churches, and grace and peace. He has to say grace and peace because he knows what's coming. It's terrifying. And it's from the, from, from the Trinity. The messages in the letters are not only for these churches, but all churches to, uh, of, of that day. Of course, for us, because Revelation is inspired scripture, it's not something to just be to leave over here in the in the dust on the prophetic shelf. It's something for us to read and to understand and, and know. Each church was to hear the specific message to it, but then also consider what God was saying to the rest of the churches. And in verses twelve through sixteen, John sees a vision of the sender of the letter, and it causes him to fall on his face like a like, like a dead man, John's response to the vision. Now we're, we're, we're on the runway, and we're, we're, about to, we're about to accelerate. John's response to the vision of the exalted son was overwhelming fear, overcoming worship, and overflowing service. Look at verse 17. He sees the vision. He says, I, I saw him. I fell at his feet like a dead man. He placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. He falls as if dead. And he falls at, at, at this, this, this one's feet. And then he rises and writes in verse 19. In verse 19. It says, therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after the, these things. He, he's instructed to write these seven letters. And he begins to write the, the, the seven letters. And, and now you're, you're, you're put back in your seat. You feel the plane begin to accelerate. There's the loveless church. We looked the persecuted church. We also looked at that one. The compromising church, the one flirting with compromise in Pergamum. And then Thyatira, the corrupt church. We did not cover Sardis, the dead church. Philadelphia, the faithful church. And Laodicea, the lukewarm church, which you probably remember. I'll spew you out of, out of my mouth. That takes us through through chapter 3, and now the wheels have, have left the, the ground. Next, John sees in chapter 4, he gets a vision of the very throne room of God, uh, off of the earth and, and into heaven, and he sees the transfer of the title deed of the earth. And there's seven scenes of the, of the throne room in, in chapter 4. 
Look, if you would, at chapter 4, verse 1. It says, after these things, things that he writes, writes about on the earth, after these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first vo a voice, which I heard, was like a sound of a trumpet, saying to me, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. So John sees an open door. He gets a vision into the very throne room of God, like Isaiah got, like Ezekiel got. I mean, what would you look at if you got to see into heaven? Well, you would look around and you would note whatever you saw. In chapter 4 is this where John sees the accessories of the throne room, everything in the throne room and, and what is going on. But his eyes focus on the centerpiece of the, uh, of the throne room. And what he sees in the, the centerpiece is, is what's happening. John sees all of the background. Verse 5. Out of the throne comes flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and the seven lamps were burning before the throne and he sees creatures bowing before the one sitting on the throne. Verse 8, they're saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and who is to come. And living creatures are glorifying and giving, giving thanks. And the 24 elders are falling down, cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O our Lord and God. And verse 11, to receive glory and power and honor for you created all things and because of you, because of your will, they existed and, and were cre created. He, he's looking around, he's, he's taking it all in. And then in verse 5, chapter 1, he says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book, a scroll, and written inside and on the back, sealed up with, 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 with seven seals. So he's looking around and his, his attention is, 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 is gathered to the one who sits on the throne and there's something going on. The one who sits on the throne picks up a scroll and stretches it out, and, and an event is about to happen. It's brought into focus here in chapter 5, the vision of Christ's right to the earth. Creation's deed. There's a sealed scroll in, in, in verse 1, and then a strong angel summons. Look at verse 2. I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and break its seals. Open the scroll and, and break its seals. I mean, the scroll is in the right hand of the, the outstretched arm of, of God. It's on the right hand. It's on the same side as Christ, who's at the right hand. And the scroll's importance is very clear because it has seven seals, not just one or three, but seven. And God from the throne takes up this scroll, so it's important from that standpoint. And when he takes it up and he holds it out, he's declaring it's time for something to take place. And, and then the angel does what you normally do in a... In a in a, in a scene like this with this important document, he calls for the person to come forward and present their credentials so that they may receive it, just like in a, a regular uh, courtroom on, on the earth. Present your credentials so you can take the scroll and so you can open it. Who, whose is this? Who's the right to do this? Who, who can show me their ID? So the transfer can take place and the document can, can be read and with that summons, the universe is silence, uh, silent. Look at verse 3. Or chapter 5. And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or, or look into it. The threefold statement. In heaven, on the earth, and under the earth is a common expression of all the created universe. Everything that God's made. In every nook and cranny. I mean, not, none in heaven. Speak up. No angels or saints, which would include Moses and the prophets. Include Elijah. Adam doesn't step forward, nor does Noah. Enoch, who walked with God and never died, he doesn't say anything. Not even Abraham, the father of faith. He, he, he remains silent. None on the earth. Remember, this is a vision of heaven. None on the earth. No one still living steps up. No, no living apostle. No king. No man, no woman, boy or, or girl. No one under the earth. No one who's died. No one in Hades, no demon, not even Satan himself. There's nothing. There was silence other than John's sadness. Verse 5. One of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, and now here's the one who has the credentials. And here are the, here are the credentials. The lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome. 
And so he's able to open the book and, 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 and it's seven seals. He has the credentials. He, he has the credentials that, that, that match the, the scroll. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's able. And, and the next 11 chapters is what happens when Jesus takes the, the scroll and begins to, to, un, to unfurl it. When he takes the scroll and begins to open it, there's seven seals... And the seventh seal, the final one, you know, so he breaks it six times, and then he comes to the, to the final one, which each would have a fold, and there would be a seal. And when he comes to the final one, six are open. He breaks open the seventh, and when he, when he reads, he would break the seal, and then you would, you would read what was on that fold of the, uh, of the scroll. You break another one, read what, what, what's on that. When, you got, when, he, when he gets to the seventh one, the seventh one contains seven trumpets, seven announcements followed by seven bowls of wrath. In chapter 6, the first six seals increase with, with intensity. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. Then I saw the lamb broke one of the seven seals. I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice of thunder, Come. But behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it with a, with a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering to conquer. So the first seal, when Christ breaks the seal, it has a rider who's given authority over, over the earth's kingdoms. And the second one, war comes. Verse 3, and when he broke the second seal, he breaks it and reads it, he unleashes it. It's a red horse. Takes peace from the earth. And a great sword was given him. War comes. And the, the third, there's famine. And the fourth brings, brings death. And the fifth, the martyred souls cry from under the, under the altar. How long, O Lord, until we will be vindicated? And the sixth seal unleashes cataclysmic events that the world's never seen. With earthquakes and natural disasters where the sky goes black, just as Jesus foretold in Matthew, Matthew 24. Verse 12, chapter 6. I looked, and when he broke the sixth seal, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth. As a fig tree cast its unripe figs and shaken in a, in a great wind. Stars, meteors, whatever it will be, will fall from the sky. just like he would shake a fig tree and an apple tree, and things come off. Unleashes these things. Chapter 7, there's a pause, and, and, and Israel is sealed. So there are two groups that are actually described here in chapter 7. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. After this, after the four of the six seals, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind would blow on the earth or the sea or, or any tree. So these angels come in and, and pause what's happening. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. Don't. Verse 3. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And so there's a pause because God's going to preserve and protect two groups of people here. The first is a group of Jewish witnesses. Verses 1 through 8. This is the 144,000. They'll be sealed on the earth, and they'll be around at the return of Christ. And the second group is verse 9. There's an innumerable number of martyrs. Verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all the tribes and the peoples and the tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. And they're singing. Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to, to the Lamb. They're worshiping. Innumerable group of martyrs that will be killed from every tongue, tribe, and nation. They'll persevere and come through the time of, of tribulation. Revelation 8. As the hour of God's final judgment comes, awe fills heaven and fear fills the earth. You are now at, at cruising altitude. And everyone is hushed. 
by what they see on the, on the scroll. Look at verse 1 of chapter 8. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, so now the seventh seal of the, of the scroll has been opened, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Now that's significant. Very significant. The silence to begin this chapter is stunning. This is not like a silence in chapter 5 where heaven and earth and, and, and the grave is asked to present their credentials and nobody can speak. They put their hand over them. What could they say? Who could present the credentials that Christ has? No one could. But there's still worship that's going on. But this is, is silence for a half an hour in, in, in heaven. There's no silence in heaven. God is worshiped 20 for, for, for 7. But, but here all of heaven is quiet with the knowledge of what is about to come on the earth. When the seventh seal is broken, everyone sees. It's written in Revelation 8, 6 through 9, 20 continues with seven angels blowing their trumpets and announcing new judgments. And the, the first four trumpets are directed at the earth's ecosystem and the last two involve demonic activity such the world has never seen. People think that there was a... a added demonic activity when the Lord came because there's not a lot talked about demons uh, demons talked about in the Old Testament a lot there's not a lot in the, in the epistles but there's a lot in, in, in the gospel so that must have been, people assume a, an increased phase of demonic activity and that's not the case this is just a, a time when the Son of God himself was walking the earth and demons are revealing themselves exposing themselves and he's proving who he is by, by doing that, that better thing, uh, very thing, but here here there is an increase of demonic activity. And in that day, God will decreate everything. Just as he spoke it and created it in the, in the, in, in the beginning, he, he's going to decreate it, and, and then he'll create a new heaven and, and a new earth, which will last forever. Now, the divine destruction of the seven trumpets is seen here in Revelation 8, beginning in Revelation 8, verse, verse 6. After the silence, a third of the earth is burned. A third. One third of the earth is burned. One third of the earth is bloodied. Verses 10 and 11. One third of the earth is embittered. It's rendered useless. One third is blackened. Verses 12 and 13. Just like with the seals, there's a pause before the final three are unleashed. Look if you would at, at verse 13. Chapter 8. Then I looked and heard uh, like an eagle flying mid-heaven saying with a loud voice, Woe, 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 emphasizing the three, like we just sang. Holy, holy, holy. This is woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpets. I mean, if what has come is not bad enough, the, the, the remaining blasts that the three angels are about to sound are far worse than the next two trumpets. Involves satanic activity such as the world has, has never seen. Fifth trumpet will bring intense torment. All of the earth's unsaved population at this point will wish that they could die but, but find no, no relief. They'll cry for the rocks to fall on them. Chapter 9, verse 1, the fifth angel sounded and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen on the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him, and he opened the bottomless pit. Smoke went up out of the pit like smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were, were darkened by the smoke of the pit. And then out of the pit came locusts upon the earth, and power was given to them. Scorpions, it's, it's demonic activity. The sixth trumpet, third of those inhabitants on the earth will, will, will die, like in verse 13 of chapter 9. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. I mean, how, how would you describe some of these visions you're seeing? You're John. One saying to the sixth angel who had a trumpet, release the four angels who have been bound. Fourth or a third of the, I should say, of the inhabitants die, and Satan himself is the one who carries it out. And now before God unleashes, unleashes the, the full wrath in his bold judgments, he... He pauses again in, in chapter 10. It's the calm before the final storm. This is a, like, a, like an interlude, if you will. 
This is like a horror movie that, that, that's real, that's so bad, God gives us pauses in the middle of it so we can take it in because it's just too much. There's a calm before the final storm. There's this mighty angel in this little book, this little scroll where John is symbolically told to eat it, meaning take it in, but, but seal it up. There's this thunderous message in solemn oath, and then there's this strange command at the very end where where John is told to prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Look at verse 11. And they said to me, you must prophesy. It ends with a command. You must warn. You must warn again. Many peoples and nations and tongues and, and kings, how gracious our God is to continually warn us of what is to come. Those are not right with him. There's bitter judgment coming. Because it's so horrible. And in chapter 11, the, the final scene in the drama is set. and John sees this future temple that will be rebuilt, rebuilt at least in some form before the tribulation period. Spoken of in Ezekiel, he sees two witnesses that are going to proclaim God's message until the Antichrist takes his place in the second half of the, of the tribulation. And so there's going to be there's going to be a gathering storm and a witness that's happening. All of these horrible things happening on the earth is going to, going to give rise to this, this one leader that you'll see later that will be able to calm the earth and the religious system will be there affirming him. And, and yet God will have witnesses, miraculous witnesses. They're, they're murdered, these two. The world rejoices. It's like prophets of old that will rise up celebration, the celebration of the world is short-lived when, when, they, when they die because these two heralds are resurrected before the world's eyes. They're murdered and resurrected. They're called up into heaven. And with that, the Bible says there is no more mercy. And the scene ends with these ominous words, verse 14 of Revelation 11. The second woe is past. Woe Woe, the second woe is past, and the third woe is coming quickly. And in chapter 12, John sees a vision, a very peculiar sight. It's a great conflict in heaven that spills over onto the earth. It's a conflict that's been going on from the very beginning, even before creation. But as God has worked his plan of redemption, Satan has worked against it. He sees a shining woman, which is Israel, who gives birth to a king, who is Christ. And they're both pursued by the great dragon, being, being Satan. There'll be a great conflict in heaven and in the earth. And there's the symbol of, of the woman and, and the dragon with the tail and this vision of kingly beasts. Again, how would you describe something? You would describe it with symbolism, but, but you can clearly see, based on what John says, who he's talking about here. There's a final conflict that's coming in heaven. There's a current conforming, a confirming voice from heaven in verse 10. And then there's this protection of this persecuted woman. God will protect his people. Satan has conducted a long war against God, and that'll find its final climax here. Chapter 13 shows the details of what happens next. This is the second half of the tribulation period. All of these woes, these seals, and these, these, these trumpets that are, that, are, that are coming from God upon the earth sets the stage for Antichrist to, to be able to take, take control in a system that's there. And then he takes, takes control and, and reign. It's the climax of his war. And here he's brought down. Verse 13 shows the details of what happens next. It's the rise of the Antichrist, who has governmental authority and his apostate church that helps deceive the, the, the world. The world system and apostate religion shows this blasphemous beast in the first ten verses and then the religious system. Always... Uh, world under the influence of Satan and now he'll have a death grip on it. He's always had false religion all the way back from the Tower of Babel. That's what's happening in the Tower of Babel. False religion was instituted. The target of both of, of the world system now and this, this religious system is believers 
those who are converted during the tribulation period and the Antichrist identifies his enemies by, by a mark, the mark of the beast, which is found in this chapter. During the tribulation, there will be a world leader who will rise who is empowered by Satan and all the world will follow after him. Who will that be? I have no idea. When I was growing up, it was Mikhail Gorbachev. Well, obviously it wasn't him, was it? Barack Obama. Well, he's not dead yet, but I don't think it's him either. I'm not sure he would be able to do that. He'll bring the unbelieving world together under one world rule, blaspheme God, attack his followers, you know, have the backing of counterfeit religion, which helps deceive the world and causes its people to, to worship this world leader. And Revelation 14 reveals then the victory of, of the Lamb. It's another one of those pauses. It's a pronouncement of, of the enemy's judgment. Chapter 14 is not in chronological order. It contains a series of future proclamations, hope-building promises that haven't happened yet, but they're about to take place. It's like, again, this is so bad, the Lord inserts this, remember what's coming right here in chapter 14. The Lamb and His followers are introduced. Verse 1 of chapter 14, I looked and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion and with Him 144,000. Then the coming judgment of the, of the Son of Man in verse 14. Look at verse 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was, was one like the Son of Man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come. Behold, the harvest of the earth is ripe. It, it, it's time. Revelation 15, John sees a final vision of these seven great angels holding the final bold judgment. So the seals, and the trumpets. The final trumpet then brings the announcement of what's coming next. Chapter 15 is, is like a trailer for an upcoming horror movie, only this is no movie. It's the just wrath of the Almighty God poured out on the, on the earth in the final days of, of tribulation. Chapter 16, the bowls are being poured out upon the earth and they come in rapid fire. They come without relief. There's pause and other... This is just... It comes. Each bowl gets stronger and stronger until the seventh finishes the wrath. They're all plagues. They're all the final plagues and they're called forth from the seventh trumpet and they conclude the seventh seal from the scroll that Jesus is opening and at the end of these plagues, the the Lamb will be able to read the full, full scroll. And we'll get to see exactly what's there. I mean, all of this is preparation for what's actually on this final page where he gets to declare the future of the earth. And what John sees in chapter 17 and 18 is the fall of the world system and how that crash happens. If you read chapter 17 in, in detail, it's the doom of Babylon. It's it's religious Babylon that falls. So the world's religions that are counterfeit fall in chapter 17. And then, and then commercial Babylon falls in, in chapter 18. The, the master is the beast. The participants are the kings of the, of the earth. And the economic and geopolitical kingdoms that, that are against God and his people finally come crashing down. You think about the world today. I mean, different cultures, different leaders, some capitalistic, some communistic, some good, some attempting to do, to do evil. They'll all come together but still have distinctions. They'll be under, under one ruler and one purpose. And this is both coming down. And now with the armies of the world gathered after the seventh bowl, everything is ready for the coming of Christ as king. The final earthly battle. And with that, John hears hallelujahs in, in, in heaven. The doom of Babylon, the victory of the Lamb, Babylon falls in all of its lament. And chapter 19 reveals the return of the, of the king. After the, the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, 
This judgment being declared, chapter 19, we go back to heaven. Reveals what's about to happen, and heaven is rejoicing again. It's, it, they're rejoicing at the, 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 the coming kingdom of, of, of our Lord. And, and what, is, what follows is then the new heavens and the new earth after this intermediate kingdom. I mean, the order of Revelation is explicit. First Christ comes, then he sets up his intermediate earthly kingdom, and then comes the new heavens and the, and the new earth. But chapter 19, heaven hears from these four groups before this battle on the earth. So you go back to heaven, and there's a hallelujah. Look, look at verse 1 of chapter 19. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, there's the first one. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and, and righteous. And he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality. And he's avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And the second time, in verse 3, they said, Hallelujah, there's the second one. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And here's the 24 elders again, the four living creatures. They fall down and worship and who sits on... God who sits on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. There's the third one. And a voice came from heaven saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. And then I heard something like a, a voice of a great multitude, like a sound of many waters, like, like the, the, the deafening sound of Niagara Falls, like the sound of many peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah. There's the fourth one. And the fourth one, declares for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. And now he's reigning. He's about to reign. And then John describes the king's arrival to the earth. It goes back to the, back to the earth after the marriage supper of the Lamb. You get his announcement. He's coming to the earth, his apparel, his army, what he's wearing, who comes with him, and the action that he takes forth. In verse 11, Chapter 19, then I saw heaven opened, behold a white horse, and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. There's the announcement that he's coming, and then what, he, what he's wearing, his eyes are, are like a flame of fire, on his head are many crowns, he's called faithful and true, he comes to wage war, his three names, one is unknown, one is the word of God, and one is king of kings and lord of lords in verse 16. He wages war and he defeats his enemies and brings about his promised kingdom. Chapter 19 ends with this climax of the, of the day of the Lord, also called the battle of, of Armageddon. It's right by the second coming of, of Christ in, in chapter 19, verse, verse 11. The two members of the unholy trinity, the Antichrist and the false prophet, are thrown in the lake of fire never to escape. The chapter ends with the Lord executing judgment on the, on the earth. Look at verse 20, chapter 19. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, which, which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And these two were thrown in, alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from his mouth. He speaks and they die from the one who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their, with their flesh. Revelation 20 introduces the intermediate millennial kingdom of our Lord. that must take place for him to fulfill what Adam failed to do. And what comes after the destruction of his enemies in chapter 19 is two major events. Satan is bound. Verse 1. Chapter 20, verse 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding a key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, threw him into abyss. And then the kingdom reigned with the saints. Verse 4, Then I saw thrones, and they that sat on it, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of, of Jesus. Here's the kingdom reign, and the saints ruling and reigning with with Christ, and John gives the kingdom's chronology and God's character and God's covenants, and it all points to this kingdom, the earth, where Christ will reign. And finally, at the end, Revelation 21 through 10, 
there's this last rebellion in verse 7. Satan is freed, raises an army, he's engulfed, and then the eternal end of the devil in verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire of brimstone, and the beast and the false prophet, where they are, they'll be tormented day and night, forever and, and ever. I mean, John's heart must have soared when he, when he got here. He receives this part of the vision. I mean, think of John. He's on Patmos. He gets these letters. I mean, the, you, these, these are mundane letters compared to what he's about to get. It's not mundane, though, because he sees this vision of the one who gives it. He gets to see into the very throne room. He sees this title deed transfer. And then he sees Jesus himself begin to, to break open the scroll and reveal it and unleashes all of these things on the, on the earth. And he just pauses throughout and all of that sets up this, this, this coming of Christ, the second coming, and, and, his, and now his kingdom. And it's finally arrived as a, as, as a Jewish apostle. I mean, he's literally sang the songs of Zion himself, probably remembered Isaiah 2.3, which says the capital of the kingdom is going to be Jerusalem. And he has in his mind Isaiah 2.4, which, which says that in that kingdom there will be no more war. After seeing all of this war on the earth, righteousness will reign there, Isaiah 11. And every Jewish boy would have, would have known Isaiah 11.9, which is a summary of the blessings of the kingdom that John is now seeing. They will not hurt or destroy in, in all my holy mountain, for, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I mean, he sung Psalm 72 that describes the results. This heavenly king, what he's going to bring, righteousness and abundant peace and a flourishing earth and the knowledge of the Lord everywhere. It'll be everywhere and there'll be no devil. John saw that Christ will reign with absolute power over the whole earth and his kingdom in his kingdom, it will be what God intended in Eden. What Adam failed to maintain and accomplish, the last Adam now has to come and, and do and, and take dominion over the earth and fill the earth with God's glory. That's the purpose of the earthly kingdom that, that is yet to come. Israel will be rejoined to God and transformed from the unfaithful wife to the one who loves and obeys her husband, and the Gentiles will share in the blessings of peace and joy and prosperity for, for a thousand years. But as high as John was flying at this moment, when he sees what comes in verse 11, I no doubt that, that took his breath. Chapter 20 in verse 11, look how he starts here. Then, then I saw... Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. No place was, was found for them. Verse 12, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which are written in the books according to their deeds. And verse 15, and anyone's name who was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. I can remember my pastor saying, reading this last verse of this opening scene, verse 6, whenever the devil is thrown into the, the, the lake of fire, or I should say verse 10. He's like, you know, I, I, I want to be there. I want to watch God throw the devil into the lake of fire. That rascal, I just remember him saying that. And as, as, as joyous as that would be, although pain and the blasphemy that he's brought, pain to saints and blasphemy to God. I don't think John's rejoicing here when he reads verse 15, that anyone who was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire where Satan is. Hell's prepared, the devil and his angels, but sinners that reject Christ go there. There's the judgment tribunal that's established. That's what he sees. He sees the wicked dead evaluated. He sees their sentence executed. And what comes next? After this horrifying scene, it's glorious. It's beyond your comprehension. Even with John's help here, he sees God make all things new. He sees what we would call heaven, which is a new heaven and a new earth. You know, the Bible refers to heaven more than 500 times. You realize 50 of those times is in the book of Revelation. Revelation talks of heaven 50 times. And now John gives us a picture of that heaven which is coming and he begins with these four features of the new creation. 
There's a new heaven and a new earth. If you would at chapter 21, verse 1. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. See the new city in verse 2? I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. It's beautiful. There's a new union in verse 3, and they're new citizens. The Bible uses the term heaven three distinct ways. You, you, you do the same thing. There's the sky or the earth's atmosphere, the blue part, if you will, or the birds fly. You say, well, uh, the birds fly through the heavens. The second is the black part, space, and all of its expanse where the stars and the moon is. That, that's the second way we use, we use heaven. But then we use heaven as the dwelling place of God. That's what John's talking about here. Heaven is a real place. It's not Zen or enlightenment or some other perversion. I mean, John sees it. He saw the new one and he saw the old one. The old one's done away with. I mean, God will create a new realm for his people to dwell in. And that's what John sees first. It's new, not just new as in next, but, but never before. That's what that word means. It's new as in never before. It's not a reworking of old creation. There's some aspects of the new one that are like the old, but, but it's not any part of the old. It's a brand new creation. How do we know that? Because John clearly says the first one passes away. And 2 Peter chapter 3 tells us how it's going to pass away. It's going to melt in fervent heat. And God provides us new capitals. There's a new city in verse 2. John sees the city's character, its source, its preparation. There's this new union in verse 3. Look at verse 3. And I heard the voice of the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. There's a lot of repetition there. John sees the fulfillment, the presence, the benefits, and the declaration of the union. I mean, four different ways to say the same thing. God is among men, he dwells among them, they will be his people, and God himself will, will be among them. It's, it's the end of Separation that sin brought. It's the beginning of God's full presence. We lost in the fall. We'll be, we'll be restored. We'll walk with God in the cool of the day. And we'll be in God's very presence. And God's presence will be amongst his people again. This is what God's promised since Eden. It's come to pass in stages. Here's the final stage. Verses 9 through 26 gives the description of the heaven's city called the New Jerusalem. It sees the name, the foundation, its perfect dimensions. I mean, John sees the city of, as a whole descending from heaven, radiating with the glory of God. It's so brilliant and light and splendor that John can hardly look at it. John sees the walls of the city, the 12 gates, and in, bed, and in bedrock, they're holding up its 12 foundation stones. The city itself is so massive that John has to squint to see its end. The city is perfectly square. It looks even closer, and its walls were covered with jewels like jasper. There are 12 gates of pearl. You, you, you sung about this, I guess. Don't look beneath the gates of pearl. Don't look on the streets of gold. Don't look by the walls of jasper, nor among the many sights unsold, uh, untold. Where will you be? You'll be at the feet of Jesus. You'll be in the middle at the city center. It's, and there the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb is there. John finally gets to look inside the city. It's like the throne room. He sees around. I mean, he's taken in by what he sees. And finally, though, his eyes look toward the center of the, of the city. And what does he see? Verse 22. John says, I saw no temple in it. So it looks to the center temple would have been the center of, of any Jewish city. John's been looking around at the walls and the gates and the foundation. Now he peers inside the city itself and he sees some amazing sights. I mean, John sees six no's here, N-O. It caught his attention. There was no temple in verse 22. No created light in verse 23. No human distinction in verse 24. No locks in verse 25. No sin, verse 26 and 27, and no curse beginning of chapter 2 verses or 22 verses 1 through 5 
and sees no temple in it. I mean, John naturally looks to the center and for a temple, and he doesn't see one. I mean, he's worshipped in synagogues, and that pointed toward Jerusalem. He expects to see a temple, but he doesn't see one. In fact, if you go to Jerusalem today, they're still trying to worship as close to the old temple as possible, and they're not even worshipping the wall of the temple. That's the wall of the foundation. The temple is where the very presence of God resides. It's a place of sacrifice. It's the center of worship, and that's exactly why it's not there in the city of heaven. Verse 22 explains it. John says, I saw no temple in it. Why? For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. They're the centerpiece of heaven. And in the final heaven, there will be no need for it because the Lamb of God will be there and the marks of the slaughter will be upon him for all eternity. And all the sacrifices that were to point to him to the final sacrifice that was to come in heaven, that one is there forever. God will be the temple. His presence will be limitless. Going to, be, going to heaven will, will be going into the very presence of the Lord, and his presence will be everywhere. Now look at verse 27. Look at what's not there. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the book of life. I mean, John sees the purity of heaven. There's nothing unclean there, nothing to defile there. No one who sins is there. Explicit, it's an explicit declaration. No one shall ever come into it. The Greek. I mean, no sinners are allowed into heaven. No one who practiced abomination. No liars are permitted in. You ever done any of those things? So how are you going to get into heaven? Well, John tells you right here. But those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, that's who's getting into heaven. This is an echo of 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then gives this long list of, of unrighteous people. And he says, but such were some of you. But you've been washed. You're sanctified. You're justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. That's whose name's in the Lamb's Book of Life. You were those. You've been washed by His blood. Now you're fit to enter heaven, and it's a place you'll, you'll live forever, and there'll be no curse. New creation is continued in chapter 22. There's this John sees Eden restored, but better. I mean, this is what creation has longed for since the, since the fall. The angels and the saints look toward Crystal River, originating from the very throne of God, tree of life. Heaven will have access, in heaven we'll have access to both. In heaven we'll be with Christ, we'll serve Christ, we'll see his face, we'll be his personal possession, and we'll reign with him forever and ever. Now we've been through the pre-speech, which was John was, was John was told to write, this vision of the Son, there's the things that are, which starts with that vision, the seven letters, the things which are going to take place afterwards, the throne room scene in chapter 4 and chapter 5, the, the unfurling of the scroll and all of the, the things that come from the judgment of the Lamb and His coming kingdom and Armageddon and earthly kingdom. And, and now we've turned from the earth to heaven. All things are new. The only thing that's left is the epilogue. Starts in chapter 22, verse 6. It's the after speech. What would you say after all of that? What's left to be said? Well, it's what you might call the conclusion or the invitation. And John started this entire book in verse 1 saying, the revelation, This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, and he ends that same introduction by saying this message is, is about the things which must soon take place, prophecy. And so now at the end of the book, after the unveiling, after the foretelling, he's about to apply it to our lives. And he says, do you believe Jesus is coming again? You should because, because he is. And here's how you should live in light of that. How should you respond to the book of Revelation? What should your response be? Well, he gives it with these four urgent applications. 
He said, Behold, I, I'm coming quickly. This letter is the ending of the Bible. And it concludes with the promise of his coming. Look at verse 12. Behold, I am coming quickly. Just like the promise uh, of the first time. He says, I'm coming again. And just like the entire Old Testament reveals how God enacts his plan piece by piece, and the New Testament does the same thing in Revelation as it's ending. This brings the entire book to a close, and there's, there's this astonishing ending. It's like hanging around for the the end of the movie where there's some extras, the credits are already rolling, and you wait to see if there's an outtake. Here's the outtake. I mean, how is God going to end the entire Bible after revealing so much? He ends it with an invitation to sinners. Look at verse 17. It says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. Let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. I mean, the emphasis here, obviously, is on the word come. It's repeated over and over. There are three imperative commands here, threefold invitation that's addressed to the one who hears, the one who's thirsty, and then anyone who's willing. And I want you to notice that the word come applies to, to different people. The first applies to the Lord himself. The Spirit and the bride say, come, come, Lord. Let the one who hears say, come to the Lord. Then he turns to make application to to sinners. Let the one who is thirsty come. The second is calling sinners to come. And notice it's the same language that you would see in Isaiah 55. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You may, uh, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Come if you're willing. Come if you're hungry and thirst for righteousness. Come without payment. Come with repentance. I mean, where is the thirsty person then called to come? The Lord's called to come. We know where he's called to come to. Where is the sinner called to come at the very end of the Bible? Well, it it, it tells you right here. He's called to come and take the water of life, which is only available without cost that is by grace can't earn it, you can't buy it with your own merits. And the ones who are responding to this command, they're hearing, they're thirsty, they desire to come, and they're invited to come. But what a book. Now, if God cares enough to reveal that much and that much detail and preserve it even until today and end it in that way with with another invitation for you to come to him, you think he cares about you? You think he's going to preserve you? you? Think he's going to see his church through the trying times that are coming? You better believe he is. You better believe he does. He cares so much he wants you to know his son before any of this comes. He, he wants you to share that same truth with others so they can come to Christ as, as well. And after that, the only final question is, do you say to the Lord, come? come or are you so rooted in the earth and so caught up here that the cry of your heart is not I want to be there come or if you don't know him will you hear his call to you to come come to me the Lord says I'll I'll give you rest come to me and then you can say come with the spirit and and the bride with the church let's pray Lord I give you thanks for your truth you thanks for the labor of others that even help me understand what you say I am a simple man, but I believe your book. And I don't do that even because of myself. That's because of your grace as well. And so I pray for anyone here who may sense your, your 
convincing, you're convicting your work of your spirit that, that they would obey. And I pray for every Christian, we would long for your coming. Help me, Lord, long for your coming. Wash me clean. Keep me clean of daily sins that would clutter up around my feet. It won't change the outcome, but it will keep me from serving you well. Keep us, Lord, from setting our affections on things on the earth. Help us to set our affections on things above. Help us, Lord, to, to live this new life that's now yours by faith in the Son of God who loves us and gave himself for us. And help us to stand, persevere, no matter the little details that unfold that we're, we're unaware of. We know how the end is going to play out. We're held here longer than we, we think we should be or want to be. Help us to persevere in you. And Lord, if we're called home today, may we rejoice in that too. We need you. We look away from ourselves and look to Christ. In his name we pray all these things. Amen.